At Christmas time in various churches and Christian organisations, certainly through the UK and possibly uh, further afield, uh, churches and organisations have um, various campaigns at Christmas time. For example, put Christ back into Christmas, or Christmas starts with Christ, or a few years back it was Jesus is the reason for the season. And uh, another one was, Jesus is for life, not just for Christmas. And I think that these are very, very important messages because uh, in the Western world, the Christmas event has become more and more secularized over the years. And uh, the true message of Christmas has been lost, really, in everything else. How many of you are Cliff Richard fans, by the way? How many of you will own up to this? One, two, three, four. Right, okay. In <laughs> four of you, okay, that's great. And, you know, if you don't mind me saying, uh, ladies of a particular age. <laughs> yes, and, and there was Peter on the back as well. But, uh, yes, Cliff Richard. Um, he's... Um, <laughs> he doesn't look like that any longer. <laughs> He had a couple of uh, Christmas number ones. Can you remember what they were, those Christmas number ones? And can you... Mistletoe and wine? Saviour's Day. Can you tell me what years they were? Mistletoe and wine? Come on, anyone? 80-something? 82, no. 88. My word, who said that? Very impressive, Paul. Yes, mistletoe and wine was... Uh, He's a, he's a closet follower. <coughs> and, um, and then in 1990, it was uh, Saviour's Day. Open your eyes on Saviour's Day. Don't look back or turn away. Life can be yours if you only stay. He is calling you, calling you on the Saviour's Day. Ironically, there was a, a song review in a teen pop magazine that judged Saviour's Day as okay. But... And I quote, I'll put the quote on screen for you. There's no holly, no mistletoe and wine, no presents around the tree, no snow, no Santa. In fact, this song hasn't got anything to do with Christmas at all. <laughs> and I promise you that that review was not a spoof. That reviewer was absolutely serious. Now, Christians have a passion of bringing Christ back into Christmas, and that's really, really important. And a few years back in, in this church on, on a Christmas, um, I remember giving one rather controversial Christmas talk. Some of you might have been around at the time when I said, we not only need to bring Christ back into Christmas, but we need to bring Herod back into Christmas as well. And uh, I remember looks of puzzlement, you know, and, you know, you were looking at me in that kind of way. Has he really lost the plot now? Has he finally cracked? Has the strain of Christmas got to him? And um, because you you'll notice that Herod really doesn't appear in too many children's nativities. <clears throat> we had a great children's nativity last Sunday in our church, and of course we had the baby Jesus, and we had Mary and Joseph, and the shepherds and the wise men, and we had the innkeepers and the innkeepers' wives, and he had the sheep, lots of sheep, Gabriel, other angels, donkeys. And in one version of the nativity, as told by the children, we even had Frankenstein. <laughs> and if you missed that, you can catch it again tomorrow, okay? But strangely, Herod didn't appear. 
And maybe we need to word with Bev and Brenda for next year. But unlike some of the other nativity cast members, including the donkey, Herod does actually feature in the Christmas story. In fact, he appears in more verses than many other characters. And the story of Herod is well known that um, he was very disturbed at what the Magi brought to him, that there was a new king who was born, uh, born as king of the Jews. And then Herod, in a paranoid rage, massacred all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem in surrounding area. Now, Herod, if you don't know anything about him, he was a nasty piece of work, this guy. He was the ancient equivalent of the Taliban or um, a, a commander in ISIS. And there was a saying which was notorious uh, in those days, and uh, you might have heard me, if you're a part of this church, say this before. Herod, it was said in that time that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And there's a wonderful play on words here because in the Greek, the, the words for son and pig are very similar. And that was probably true. He even killed a number of his own family members because he saw them as rivals to the throne. And then um, he realized that no one would mourn him. So he'd arranged that on the day of his death, that a number of the best loved leaders in the nation would be imprisoned and then massacred. So at least the nation would have something to mourn about. Thankfully, that wasn't carried out. But you may be thinking, why on earth would I want to put Herod back into Christmas? And um, it's my 26th Christmas here in this church. And some of you may say, well, you've run out of Christmas sermons. That's what that's about. <laughs> but it's not. And as I said a few, a few years ago, when I, I just shared uh, a whole talk on that, was that Herod represents the dark side of humanity. He reminds us that Jesus didn't get born into a world of sparkly Christmas cards and mulled wine and mince pies and a place of sentiment and nostalgia. That God sent his son, Jesus, into a world of real pain, of serious dysfunction, a world of brokenness and political oppression. And this morning, I just want us for a few minutes to revisit what that first Christmas was really like. And when you think about it, Jesus was born as an outcast, a homeless person, a refugee, who finally became a victim of the political powers of oppression of his day. Now, personally, I don't know about you, personally, I can relate much more to that kind of Jesus than to the sentimental, meek and mild, blue-eyed, sugar-coated, good-looking Jesus with a neatly trimmed beard and an American accent. Nothing against American accents, by the way. Maybe you can too. International humanitarian medical charity Doctors of the World recently launched its, its Christmas cards. And the card designs feature a traditional biblical nativity scene mixed with modern day photographs of conflict uh, in the Middle East. And at this time of the year, when many of us are thinking about loved ones and we're thinking about peace and goodwill to all men, uh, these Christmas cards uh, provoke our thinking, not only about those who are presently today living in areas of conflict in our world, but also the world into which Jesus was born, the real Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And these images, in contrast to the many uh, uh, Christmas cards that you'll see in our shops, portray the stable 
uh, of the nativity, not as a kind of warm, cozy place um, with lots of hay and cute sheep and the like, but rather Jesus was born into abject poverty in barbaric times, narrowly avoiding being (coughs) murdered as a baby in a country which was under foreign occupation. And if we are putting Christ back into Christmas, and that is certainly something I would love to see in society, I think that the Christ that we are putting back into Christmas needs to be truly the Christ of the Christmas story, not the make-believe, sanitized, sentimental one of Christmas carols, which don't really have a huge amount of reality about them. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Do you believe that? You know, I think there have been lots of crying and lots of other things uh, for which babies are renowned as well. One Cambridge University theology professor by the name of uh, David Inston Brewer wrote in the Christianity magazine these words, and I thought they were very, very good. He writes, I prefer the dirty and messy facts about Christmas to the sanitized versions because they have a ring of truth about them. Given the choice, no supporter of Jesus would have fabricated the dodgy visitors, his embarrassing birth and background, or his mother's bizarre claims of a virgin conception. It was a problem from the start and still is. It conveys the opposite of glorious birth accounts in mythology and fairy stories. Basically what this theology professor is saying is that if his first follower is going to tell a tall story, then surely they could have done a better job than the one that they did of it because this one certainly has a ring of truth for that reason, that it was a real story. It's a real story that includes Herod. It's a story that questions the legitimacy surrounding Jesus' birth. It's a story that tells of Mary and Joseph who were forced into a barn because the family had rejected them. Not a cosy picture. I don't know if any of you have ever slept in a barn. Any of you? I, I don't mean you're on one of these posh barn conversions. <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about a barn. And I, you know, any of you? For whatever reason that we, you know, I wouldn't want to ask what that. You have. I'm not going to ask a reason here. That's your business. But um, a question to follow up that if for whatever reason, maybe as a youth weekend or something like that, you know, I'm sure that there's nobody in here that would have ever given birth in a barn, in such a place. And when you think about it, the reason that Joseph and Mary were traveling to Bethlehem was because of Caesar's census. Joseph was required to go back to his hometown. He had relatives. He had friends in that town. But rather than being received hospitably (coughs) by his relatives and by his friends in that town, doors were closed to them. Probably people were declaring their moral outrage that Joseph should turn up on their doorsteps with a pregnant girlfriend. You see, things were very different in ancient Israel to what they are in modern day society in Britain. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But it's only Matthew and Luke who provide us with any accounts of the birth of Jesus. Matthew was this hard-nosed finance guy, and Luke was a a medical doctor and a historian. Now, these guys tell us all about what happened in the real Christmas, and they tell us about some dodgy visitors that came to see Jesus too, Uh, the shepherds. 
and then sometime later the Magi. Now, the shepherds and the Magi were nothing at all like the shepherds and the, the wise men who were portrayed in children's nativity scenes. They, they weren't cute, tea-towel-wearing kiddies who had been very neatly turned out for the occasion, nothing like it. In fact, the shepherds were viewed as the lowest of the low. They really were the pits. They were the outcasts in society. So don't, you know, sort of elevate them and say, you know, they, they were people of status. No, they weren't. They were the lowest of the low. Um, let me give you an example of this. And just hang on with me for a moment because the question I'm going to ask you might seem a very strange question, okay? Let me put it on screen. When is a loaf not a loaf? <clears throat> now, this isn't one of the Christmas cracker riddles, but it was a serious matter of debate amongst the rabbis in the first century. The Jewish law taught tithing, that is 10% of one's income needed to go to the temple. And um, we have a system similar in our, company, in our country, don't we? That the first 10% initially, and then it goes on to higher rates, we, we pay income tax to the government. It was a similar, similar setup. And the first 10% would go into the temple treasury. And a baker, for example, would give the monetary equivalent of one loaf in every 10 loaves that he baked. But bakers might ask, because they were trying to get out of this, how stale and moldy does a loaf need to be for this to be counted in the tithe or the tenth? Good question. Because if they could get an answer on this, then maybe they could reduce the amount of tithes or 10% that they needed to pay on the loaves that they produced. And if they could say that four out of the 10 were too moldy and therefore they didn't have to pay a tax on that, then they'd be quids in, or denarii in. Paying six maybe instead of 10. And the answer that the rabbis gave to that old question was that a baker needed to count any loaf that could be eaten by a shepherd. Because they regarded the shepherds as having the lowest social standing. And shepherds were renowned for not being too fussy about what they would eat. And they would eat bread that other people wouldn't eat. And therefore, it's just a story of how the shepherds were regarded in society. They weren't elevated. They weren't people of prestige and status. They were the, the dregs of society. And then we come to Matthew's Gospel, we read of the Magi, or the wise men. They were Gentile astrologers. They weren't kings. I know that the, the carol, we three kings of Orient are, <laughs> one in a taxi, one in a car. No, they weren't kings at all. These were utterly, these were people who were utterly despised by pious Jews. So, who were the first visitors to Jesus. They were the shepherds. They were the lowest of the low in society. And they were these Gentile astrologers that Jewish people had no time for at all. So if today's, you know, so trying to bring that into context for today in contemporary language, today's uh, visitors would be homeless drug addicts 
and rich drug barons, the poorest and the richest, both despised in society. The shepherds were seen as scumbags and the magi were seen as dodgy foreigners. And that isn't the way that we normally think of them. Okay, what's the big question behind all this? Why am I telling you all of this? Why is it important to put Herod back into Christmas? Why is it so important to see the true Christmas accounts, not the sentimental, not the sanitized versions, but Matthew's account and Luke's account? Why is it so important to do that? Why is it so important not to misunderstand what the <laughs> Christmas why story, why is it so important? And the answer really is very, very simple. Because when we recognize that God sent his son Jesus into a world of real pain and brokenness and oppression, that he was not born into a palace to royalty, but he was born as a peasant baby, an outcast, a homeless refugee, whose legitimacy was questioned, whose life was under threat. And when we recognize that, we will recognize something else too. That God in Christ knows what human suffering is all about. He understands our suffering. He promises to be with us in our suffering. And there may be some of you here this morning. You've been saying that if there's a God, then he, he doesn't know what I'm experiencing. He has no idea what I'm going through at, the t at, at this moment. He, he may be up there. There may be a God. He may be up there. He may be in his palace in heaven. He may be, but he's got nothing at all to do with my life. He doesn't understand my life of suffering, of hurt, of poverty, of bereavement. Well, I would say that the good news this morning is that he most definitely does understand. Because that is the heart of the true Christmas story of God becoming man. Emmanuel, God with us. That he understands our suffering. He has tasted suffering firsthand. Emmanuel. What else are we told by this story? That God in Christ calls his followers everywhere to reach out to those in this world who suffer, especially the poor and the oppressed. Jesus came to shed his light, God's light, into this world. And his people have also been called to shed the light of God in this dark world, to reach out to the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and the aged and the lonely. For their concerns become our concern because they are God's concern. And that is what we are unashamed, as Tamworth Helium, to say that that is what we're about. That is why we have a food bank. That is why we are involved with the winter night shelter providing meals and accommodation for the homeless. That is why we have a coffee shop that gives free food and drink away to the whole community every day. The least, the lost and the lonely, those on the margins of society, those who are vulnerable... That is why we have a ministry to the socially isolated elderly. Jesus knows what it is to be oppressed and forsaken, misunderstood and rejected. He knew what it was to be a refugee, as he and his parents were refugees in Egypt for a time. I remember a few years back now, uh, Brenda <coughs> telling me about a, a, a Christmas school assembly that she was taking in one of the local schools. 
And because uh, assemblies are front-facing and uh, you, you don't often get the opportunity to talk to the kids afterwards, but on this morning she had a, an opportunity and one of the girls was there and um, she said to Brenda, what are you doing at Christmas time? And, and Brenda answered and then she said, well, what are you doing? And they got into a bit of a conversation. And then this girl said to Brenda, do you actually believe all that stuff? Meaning the, the Christmas story that Brenda had just shared with her. And that, in a sense, is a question this morning for us. Do we believe all this stuff? If someone were to ask me that question, do you believe in all this stuff? Well, if we are talking about the sentimental, sanitized versions of events, to answer that question, my answer would be, no, I don't. I don't believe all this stuff. But if I am being asked whether I believe in the true story, the story of scandal and shame, the account of God getting his hands dirty, as it were, and leaving heaven to come to where we are, to understand our suffering, to know what we are going through, then yes, I most certainly do. And more than that, you know, I thank God for the, the hope and the joy that this amazing story, this, this Christmas story, brings to my life. Knowing that we have a God who understands, that we have a God who will be with us through the tough times as well as the good. So my question, I suppose, I'm, I'm just going to bring it to an end in a moment. Christmas is all about blank. If you were to answer that for yourself, what would you put, what words would you put in there? Family, turkey, holidays, carols. Mince pies, turkey curry, Disney, chill out, sport, church, Christ. You see, if for you Christmas is all about Christ, then I need to ask you another question. Which version of the story is it all about? Is it about the scandal and the shame version? Or is it about the candy floss version? Is it about the real life-changing message of light in darkness? A message of joy and hope to the world? A message of the reality of God stepping down into our world? Or is it tinsel and holly, mistletoe and wine version? Christianity is not some make-believe myth that makes us feel warm and cosy on the inside. Something that we pull out in an emergency. Something that we have just in case we need divine help or comfort. Nor is Christ only for Christmas, but he's for all of our lives. He's for the good times, he's for the bad times, and he's also for the in-between times. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together.